Convicted and Convinced, a message from God's Word for you. And now, here's Dr. Lloyd Willis with today's lesson. Good morning, Sabbath School. Let's pray. Dear Lord, please guide us in our study of this important topic today. May your Spirit be present with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So creation, creation and the book of Genesis, particularly as the foundation, foundation of what? Foundation of the rest of scripture. It's a presupposition to the rest of the Bible. 170 years ago, there was great excitement in the world press. A creation story had been found at Nineveh by an English archaeologist, Layard, and it wasn't long before it was being claimed that this was the original from which Moses got his ideas. It turns out to be a very confusing and, and very violent story and very polytheistic. We'll talk about that more next week. But for today, I want you to see the contrast. The biblical account, the biblical account is simple, it's orderly, it's dignified, God is the all-powerful one who is completely in charge and smoothly directs in the emerging of the various beautiful elements of creation and of nature. There are four key Bible passages that we'll look at first uh, that, that set the tone for this and, and give us the direction. The first one, we'll start at the, at the end, the first one is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, from the point of view of the New Testament, that's the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I want you to notice that. Jesus is the one who was the active agent, especially uh, active in creation, and it was through his word that these things were made and sustained. If we go next, verse number two, to John Chapter 1, this is a memory verse for today, verses 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, uh, a title for Jesus, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has life that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Light both in the physical sense and in the spiritual sense. Jesus is the light and the one through whom all things were made. So that's John 1. Then if we go back to Psalms, Psalm 33, remember this is poetry, but we notice that in this section it's it's praising God for his power and his goodness. 
and it says in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, there it is again, the word, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Hebrew parallelism, synonymous parallelism, the word of the Lord and the breath of his mouth. He, he gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. He's in control of the water supply. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. There again, the Hebrew parallelism, synonymous. He spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it stood firm. So the word of God, the word of the Lord is powerful. And that's how creation occurred. Now we go back to Genesis chapter one to the beginning. And there in verse three and subsequent verses, it says, and God said, there's the word again, and God said, let there be light and, and so forth as you go on through the chapter. And so uh, it's the word of Jesus, the word of God, that is the creative power. It, uh, I'm not a scientist, but I, I understand that uh, in nuclear fission, you have matter being destroyed and power being the result that's released. Here it's the opposite. You have the word of God, there's the power, and matter appears. It's quite fascinating to think of it that way. All right, so um, in Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What a simple and beautiful statement. In the beginning. Beginning of what? Well, <laughs> that's been debated. At least it's the beginning of the, the plan of salvation because it's describing the story of humans, where they came from, and what happens to them and how they are redeemed. But in the beginning, God was already there. That's a very simple statement and, and exciting. Um, implicitly, the Trinity is there because in verse 1, where it says in the beginning, God, that word God is a kind of a generic term for God, Elohim, and it's a plural word. Now, this may indicate the Trinity. Uh, I think that can be argued. It could also be that this is a plural of majesty. When you're talking to somebody great, you use the plural form in a number of languages as well as in Hebrew. But here, God uh, is there in verse 1. In verse 2, in the Hebrew, it's very interesting. It says, uh, uh, and the earth was without form and void or was formless or was chaotic. And then it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the Hebrew, it's a verb that, that indicates a kind of a, of a soaring, supervising. The spirit of God was like an eagle watching over things in the distance. And so God was there by his spirit. So the plural word in verse 1 and subsequently, and the spirit mentioned specifically in verse 2. And then when you come to verses 26 and 27, it says, then God said, let us, plural, 
make man in our plural image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and so forth. So the, the Trinity doctrine is implicit, at least, in Genesis chapter 1. It's interesting that the, uh, that the verb used is bara, and bara is uh, used only for God. God is the only subject for the verb bara. Uh, we make things and do things, but not create in the sense that's used by this word. Uh, in Amos 4.13, it says God creates the wind. In Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart. God creates a clean heart. That's a miraculous work that God does. And in Isaiah 65.17, he will create a new heaven and a new earth. So God was already there uh, right at the beginning of this account. But the earth, was the earth already there? That's debated. Some Adventists feel that, that God created the earth and left it in a state of chaos. And then now in Genesis 1-1, he comes to this earth to set it up as a home for humans. That's a possibility. You can't deny that from the text. But uh, whether the earth was already here or not, it's clear that he did create it. God created everything, and uh, in uh, Ellen White makes a statement, this is from 8 Testimonies 258, that uh, in the formation of our world, God was not indebted to pre-existent matter. So God created everything. Everything that is created was created by the word of the Lord, by Jesus. So uh, what does it mean he created the heavens and the earth? What does the heavens mean? Well, it could be that this is a reference to the atmosphere and the clouds and that which surrounds the earth immediately. It may be that it is also looking to the fact that all the stars and all of the uh, objects of the universe were created uh, by God, not by somebody else. In... Uh, my high school days, I remember we kids in school discussed why is there a double account of creation? You've got Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Actually, the subdivision is halfway through verse 4 of chapter 2. The first account goes right through chapter 1 and the first three and a half verses of chapter 2, going from in the beginning to the end of the Sabbath, the, the end of the creation of the Sabbath. So uh, it was pointed out by some people or claimed by some people that this is contradictory. And uh, that's not really the case. In Genesis chapter 1 and up to 2, 4a, it actually is using the name Elohim, this generic word for the powerful God, the one who is in charge. And that's very appropriate because it's, it's going through the sequence of the seven days. God, the powerful God, is the one who is doing all of this work in Genesis chapter 1. Then when you get to chapter 2, verse 4b, and on through the rest of chapter 2, a different name is added. Elohim is repeated, but now it's Yahweh Elohim. Why? 
because Yahweh is God's personal name. And in chapter 2, it's dealing especially with God in relationship with the humans. The focus in chapter 2 is not to go right through all the seven days again, but to focus especially on the sixth day when man is created. If you just run your eyes through the chapter, chapter 2, you've got the, uh, the creation of man, you've got uh, his home, you've got his partner, you've got his work. So it's God, not just the great powerful God who's out there, but the God who is a personal God, Yahweh, who is in relationship with these human beings. Now, it is also true, maybe some are frustrated by this, but Genesis 1 and 2 are not a scientific account. It's not anti-scientific, but it is not specifically scientific. So it doesn't answer all of our questions. It doesn't go into all of the details that we might wish that it had. If it had, using modern scientific language, nobody would have understood it for all these centuries down until the 19th, 20th, 21st century. So because it is not trying to give a scientific description, there are bound to be some questions that remain. And so we argue about them. In fact, chapter one is a simple outline, especially with a view to the plan of salvation. Genesis chapter one, a perfect world. And then chapter three, sin comes in and you have degradation in chapter three. Then chapter three, verse 15, you have the promise, the first promise in scripture that God is going to deal with this and give us a second chance. And then you have the story of what happens after that. Eventually you get to the Gospels where the specific uh, detail of the, uh, of the creation uh, by Jesus and the work of Jesus and the salvation he makes available to us is there in Genesis, I'm sorry, in uh, the Gospels. So eventually you come to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters, and here we have restoration predicted, how all things are going to be made right again. So it doesn't explain all of the questions we may have. It doesn't explain what is the light that God created on day one. And it doesn't say how there's light and darkness before the sun. And yet there are days. And uh, we'll talk about the length of the days in a moment. But uh, it, it is clear that there was some form of light that was made that comes from God. And then God allowed the darkness to take over. So you have the dark part and then the light part of each day. The evening and the morning is each day as you, as you read through it. But on the fourth day, there was the sun. And so now the evening and morning sort of takes a special shape because of the existence of the sun. But were the sun and the moon created on the fourth day? That's been debated a lot. That's in verse 14. It says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. So God says, let there be lights. Does that mean he created them on that day? 
some would say that he opened up the atmosphere to allow the sun and the moon to be seen on that day. That's a possibility. At least it is very interesting to notice that in verse 16, having mentioned the greater light and the lesser light, it then says in Hebrew, the stars also. In other words, did he make them also during creation week? It doesn't say that, but don't think that he did not make the stars. The stars also were created by, by him. It's also been pointed out that where it says he made the greater light and the lesser light to rule the day and the night, that it does not name them as the sun and the moon, probably because these were objects of worship to all of the various nations of the ancient Near East. The sun was Shamash, and that was the, the sun god that is mentioned in this creation account that uh, we'll look at next week. So uh, the uh, greater light and the lesser light, rather than naming these objects that were worshipped by so many people. So uh, in the account that we have here in Genesis chapter 1, it's a an outline description giving God in charge and doing it, but without answering every detailed question from a scientific point of view. Uh, they tell me that uh, in philosophy, the main questions a philosophy is supposed to deal with is, who am I, where did I come from, and where am I going? And that is answered in the scripture. The where did we come from is right here in Genesis chapter 1. Before God, I'm sorry, before uh, this account where humans appear, God was there. You don't understand that, but that's what it says. It proceeds to give us what is made on each day. This has been described as the form and the content. Days one, two, and three, the context, the, the environment are created. And then on days four, five, and six, you have the substance, the, the creation of the various elements, the uh, uh, creating of uh, the day sequence and the uh, animals of the air and sea on day five, day six, the land creatures, finally humans who are made in God's image. So the question has been asked again and again, were the days in Genesis 1 literal? The popular theory is that each day was actually a thousand years or many thousands of years or a vast period of time. The interesting thing is that the word yom in Hebrew, that's the word for day, occurs 2,504 times in the Old Testament. And of these, there are 400 times that yom is used with a number. When you consider those, those 400 references, every time it's used with a number, like the ordinal first, second, third, etc., every one of those, without exception, it appears to be a literal day. There's really no debate about it. That's a strong argument for the fact that this is a account of what happened in seven literal days. Also, Yom is used with evening and morning. And every time, Yom is used with evening and morning. The evening and the morning were the first day, etc. That also is literal. 
The rule actually that's used in interpretation is that if the language is literal, we should understand it as literal. On the other hand, if the language is figurative, symbolic, then we should see what is the symbolic meaning. But here we have literal language, and that uh, really points to literal days of creation week. The language of Genesis 1 and Exodus 20, uh, very similar, uh, overlapping. Remember the Sabbath, four in six days. So uh, the six days of creation are memorialized by the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a literal day, and so uh, it, it is um, a memorial of the literal days of creation week. <clears throat> Some have added a scientific explanation as well. If the days were a thousand years, how could the plants have survived without light, the sunlight? And how could uh, plants have survived without the pollination from insects uh, for thousands of years or millions of years or whatever it might, might be? So Genesis chapter, 31, uh, chapter 1 verse 31 sums it up. God says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So he made the Sabbath, and he blessed us with the Sabbath. And Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Dear Lord, we thank you for your many gifts, the gift of marriage and the gift of, of the Sabbath that both come to us from Genesis, from the Garden of Eden. We pray that you will bless us on this day as we contemplate your word. In Jesus' name. This podcast is a service of the University Parkway Seventh-day Adventist Church in Pensacola, Florida. Our weekly podcasts are recorded every Saturday morning. Bible study begins at 9.30. The sermon begins at 11. You are invited to join us. We live stream the 11 o'clock service. You can catch that broadcast at our website, universitypkwy.org, or at Livestream. A library of previous messages is available on our YouTube channel, and on our website. Thank you for listening.